Rojbaş, this is the Kurdish edition podcast and I'm your host Sardar Saadi. Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of the Kurdish edition podcast. Today I have a special guest to continue talking about Rojava, but before introducing her, I want to talk about the Kurdish edition uh, a little bit and make uh, an announcement uh, which I'm very uh, excited about. This episode is a, a major landmark for me in producing this podcast. From the moment that I talked about the idea of having a podcast about Kurdish culture and politics with uh, my partner and some close friends, I was afraid of its uh, realization, uh, technical issues, and uh, to be honest, my language and hosting skills. My aim was to produce at least five episodes in 2019 and then uh, see how this is going to turn out. And here we are at episode 10 with close to 10,000 plays. I will have another one or two episodes this year, but for 2020 and onward, I would like to extend an uh, invitation to academics, intellectuals and artists whose works are related to the Kurdish society, culture and politics in all four parts of Kurdistan and in diaspora to pitch stories and proposals uh, for uh, the podcast. And this is uh, how it will work. Uh, You basically pitch a story for an episode of the Kurdish edition that you want me to host or you would like to host it yourself uh, depending uh, of course on technicality of producing it you can co-host your proposed episode uh, with another person or conduct it in in the form of an interview and in the next step I will uh, uh, actually I would like to invite some of those who have produced and hosted an episode or in the process of doing so to join an, an editorial board uh, of the podcast. And uh, beside the main podcast of the Kurdish uh, edition, I'm also very excited to inform you that there will be two more podcasts in the near future. The first one will be only about the Kurdish music and it will be in English. And for the second one, I am uh, currently talking to some friends about initiating the Kurdish version of the Kurdish edition podcast in both Kermanji and Sorani. Therefore, I would like to extend this invitation for for proposals for both uh, the music podcast as well as the Kurdish one. Of course, there will be a process of selecting the best proposals if there are too many of them. Uh, that we cannot produce with the limited time and uh, logistical capacity that this podcast has at the moment. There will be a quality review process for each proposal. Uh, Your proposed story must be well-researched, original, and speaking to both academic and non-academic listeners. We will uh, also need to talk about the technical aspects of producing a podcast as many of you potential editors live in different corners of the world. You can send your proposal directly to myself. Uh, I'll provide my email address in the description of this episode on SoundCloud. Your submission should be uh, no more than 700 words or maximum two pages. And uh, 
it should clearly describe the topic of your proposal, your schedule for producing it, your co-producer uh, or co-host or uh, interviewee if there is one. Those selected will be contacted for the next steps. And for more details, please visit my website, thekurdishedition.com. It's important to mention that the Kurdish Edition podcast works solely on a voluntary basis and at the moment it does not receive any financial support of any kind from anybody. In future, I may ask uh, support from academic, uh, cultural and educational institutions um, to expand the podcast in terms of technical and logistical support. But again, the Kurdish Edition is a non-for-profit project. Okay, now back to this current episode. As I said, this is a special episode for me because of my special guest, uh, Janet Beal. Janet Beal is the author of many books and articles, uh, a copy editor, a translator, and a graphic artist living in Burlington, uh, Vermont, in the United States. In the late 1980s, uh, she became involved with the Left Green Network in Vermont and for more than two decades she advocated the theory and politics of social ecology. I have known Janet for many years mainly because of her work with the Kurdish movement but uh, I just had a chance to properly meet and uh, talk to her for this uh, podcast. Janet has been tirelessly working to support the Kurdish freedom movement throughout the 2010s and she has been to Kurdistan four times to attend events and participate in different activities. Her solidarity works include the translation of many books, writing articles, uh, conference presentations, and uh, basically advocacy on behalf of the Kurdish movement on mass media and uh, in cultural and political events. Since the beginning of the Rojava revolution, uh, Janet has been a vocal voice around the world to support this revolution and uh, she's more recently the main character of a documentary film called Road to Rojava. Uh, she is right now also working on a graphic novel uh, about her time in Rojava and uh, in the northeastern parts of Syria. In this podcast we'll talk about both the film and the book and in general her work in Kurdistan and how she became introduced to the Kurds and the Kurdish movement. Uh, listen to my interview with uh, Janet Beal. Dear Janet, thank you so much for being on my podcast. And this is really a, a big honor uh, to have you. Uh, and uh, there's a lot that we can uh, talk about. But uh, uh, I, uh, be- before coming to the daily events and the difficult uh, times that we are in, in terms of what's happening in Rojava, I wanted to... Uh, uh, tell our readers a little bit about yourself and what kind of work you're doing and maybe we can talk later about uh, your last trip to Rojava. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here on Kurdish Edition. Um, so thank, thank you. you. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Um, I've been involved with the Kurdish movement since 2011 um, when I was invited to to speak at the, a conference of the Mesopotamian ecology movement mm-hmm. in Diyarbakir um, and basically realized that something extraordinary was happening with the Kurdish movement then and 
fell in love with it. And mm -hmm. I've been trying to figure out how, from the remote place where I live, Vermont, how I can best make contributions to it. Mm -hmm. um, there aren't, I, if there are any Kurds here in Vermont where I live, I don't know. I don't know of them. Maybe there, maybe there are some Tur Turkish people here who are actually Kurdish. I don't know. So, so I, I live in a, in a remote area. But um, and I had act, I've actually thought of moving to Montreal or Toronto or to Hamburg or to London, you know, to be more involved where there are more Kurdish people. But someone said to me, "No, don't do that. You stay where you are. We need <laughs> you to do your translations and your writing there. And if you lived in these other places, you would be going to demonstrations all the time." <laughs> <laughs> well, I stand and, uh, against this suggestion. We would love <laughs> to have you in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe when the, when the, I want to finish with the translations, I'll be able to come there. Yeah. So, but in any case, it works for now. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've translated several books from German into English that were relevant to the Kurdish movement because there are a lot of Kurds, as you know, in Germany, mm -hmm. and they've been there for quite a while, and there's a whole literature in German that's not in English, mm -hmm. and um, a lot of action in Germany that is separate from the English-speaking world, and since I, I, learned, I learned German uh, in high school, I decided to this could be a way I contributed. So I translated a book called uh, Revolution in Rojava from mm -hmm. German into English. Oh, I also translated before that a book called Democratic Autonomy in North Kurdistan um, that was based on a field study that was being conducted by some people who I met that first trip in Diyarbakir. They were Germans and they were going out to to look for what are these institutions of democratic confederalism. And I said, oh, are you going to write about it? And they said, yes. And I said, may I translate it? And they said, yes. So that was democratic autonomy in North Kurdistan. And then that was published by the social ecology school. Uh, there's something in Germany called, if I'm not wrong. It was published by a press called New Compass in Porsgrunn, Norway, right. which is a socially run by a group of social ecologists. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, so that and then and then the next book I translated was um, um, the memoir of Sakina Jansis. Right. Uh, it's in three volumes, and two volumes are completed and published now right. by Pluto Press. Yeah. Uh, and I'm working on volume three now. Hopefully mm -hmm. that will be published next year sometime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's, awesome. that's my, my translation work, and uh, I hope it's a hope it's a decent con contribution. In the meantime. I visited Rojava a few times. Yeah, this First, is the, the last time was the, the fourth time that you've been to Kurdistan and was uh, last spring, right? Yes, it was yes. in April of this past year. Okay. Um, I was invited to make a film uh, oh. by two London-based independent filmmakers mm -hmm. who had the idea that I would go uh, uh, that that I would go to Rojava and go around looking for traces of Murray Bookchin mm -hmm. and they would film it. And I, uh, it, it, it took me a while to get used to this idea, but um, because, well, for personal reasons, but okay, I was I finally said, oh, yes, okay. Fair enough, fair <laughs> I'll, enough. I'll be, I'll be the center of your movie if you think I'm that interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and, but at the same time, I said to them, you know, it's very dangerous there now, mm -hmm. and Turkey is, is licking its chops to invade Rojava, yeah. and uh, I think... It feels a little strange to be looking for traces of Murray, a man I loved very much, but there's a lot going on there that needs to be discussed as well. Right. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a, a whole situation there that needs to be examined, you know, separately from from this issue about Bookchin. Mm -hmm. And they said, that's okay, we agree with that. 
So we spent a month there, mm -hmm. and it actually turned out to be uh, a good idea because um, we traveled through Jazeera and Kobani, and in the process of, you know, I was always introduced as Bookchin's late partner, right. and so if anybody responded to that, we would talk about that. But a lot of people didn't. The, the name really didn't mean much to them, yeah. and just went on and talked about what they were doing and their projects and their hopes for the future. So it, it ended up the movies ended up being a little bit of both, I think. Okay. Um, but and I think the way it's it's being edited now, uh, as this invasion is going on, and I hope that they will not well, linger too long on the. I mean, and I would assume uh, just the parts about Bookchin, but there's a beautiful revolution that was going on there, even be, that went beyond him. Right. And I hope they are focusing on on that. And uh, the movie right now, uh, you said in the process of post production, I would say. Uh, yes. They're editing. Yes. It's, they had to do do some crowdsourcing because yes. they're independent. They had to do crowdfunding to to raise money to pay an editor, mm -hmm. and they they met their goal. Mm -hmm. And it's being edited now. It's I believe it's in the fourth week of editing at this point. So um, hoping it will it will be it will be available. That's great. And what's the name of the movie? If you remind me of the name. The the working title they chose is is Road to Rojava. Road to Rojava. And yes. I yes. guess uh, you filmed a lot of meetings, a lot of uh, council, uh, communal work, and this is where uh, I would uh, trace the Murai Bukchin. And the work you have done, right? Yes. Well, I told, especially in when we got to Kobani, we had a, a very interesting fixer there, and he asked what I wanted to see, and I said, you know, based on you know, democratic confederalism is based on this democratic structure with communes at mm -hmm. the base, that's at the at the level of the the block or the residential street, yep. and then and the communes are basically the equivalent of what Bookchin called citizens' assemblies, right. and then. Then in the confederal structure, each commune sends a delegate to the next level up, which is the neighborhood, and then the neighborhood, the neighborhoods, these delegates form councils in the mm -hmm. neighborhoods, and then the de the neighborhood councils send delegates up to the city level, and then beyond that, the canton and the self-administration. So, I said I. I told him I'm a democracy nerd. I want. <laughs> I would like to see this. <laughs> is it possible? So. He said, "Of course, it's possible." So first, we went to a we went to a village a, a village commune. I, I had been to an urban commune on a previous trip in Kamishlo, but he took he made the interesting choice to take me to a village commune because right. they so in in the rural areas the jurisdiction of a commune is can be the entire village because it's very small, and it was an Arab village. Mm -hmm. It was an Arab village near the Euphrates. Um, you could almost you could almost see the Euphrates from from the town, and it was we walked into a room and it was a little schoolhouse, and it was they, they, the members were mostly men, mm -hmm. um, wearing their jala, jala, older men wearing jalabas and and kafias, squeezed into tiny little student desks <laughs> to yes. have their meeting, and what they described was essentially it, it wasn't a, a live meeting itself they were sort of acting it out in order to show us because they had heard that i wanted to see this right. so they were sort of presenting what this meeting was like and they um explained the different committees that they right. have at the commune level there's 10 committees mm -hmm. uh, all the way up the structure um at the different levels there's self-defense there's health there's health and medicine there's women there's there's only one woman 
only one woman in this meeting, because this is an Arab community, and I, and I, I had been hearing that sometimes there's difficulties considering that maybe Islam thinks that women should stay home, and it's maybe not so easy for women to participate, but the one woman who was there was extremely educated and extremely illiterate, and she was saying, we are we are working hard on getting women here, and in the future you will see this. Right. So, so um, and I believe her. And so they talked about, well, how's the health situation? Well, we need more doctors here. Um, how's the self-defense? What was? And they talked about their liberation from Dash. Mm-hmm. And they t- I talked about life under Dash, and how 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 horrible it was. How Dash, you know, would, would cut off your arm if you smoked a cigarette. And one man said that the worst thing about it was that, you know, we were if you made one mistake, you could be killed. And we were it. They made us distrust our families because we were afraid to go outside with our families, with our wives and children, because if they said something wrong, they could get us all killed. And so. Dash made us hate our families. He said it was. He said that was the worst thing. Right. And um, so, and in any case, but getting back to the to the democracy, yeah. Um, when when I asked if if both Kurds and Arabs had liberated their village, they they just almost like, oh like oh here's this question again. You know they were so <laughs> bored. There's no difference between Kurds and Arabs. They said they mm. almost, as as one of the filmmakers said afterwards, they almost seemed irritated that we asked. Yeah, no. well, Turkey is trying to use that uh, very much against the uh, Kurdish uh, uh, movement that they are trying to displace Arabs. They they are doing the they the Kurds are the one that are doing ethnic cleansing against uh, Arab residents of the, the northeast uh, part of Syria. And for many people who have been there, this is just ridiculous. The, and I have also been there, but the, I was there during the early times of Rojava in 2014. Oh. And uh, the, the, the closest person that I was with was a, uh, an Arab uh, uh, singer. And uh, he was just uh, incredible. And there was no question of who is Kurt, who is Arab. And uh, it is just uh, ridiculous when you see that the Turkish media is using that as uh, propaganda. Yes, please, yeah. This is what I found too. Everywhere we went, we looked for, we asked about K- Kurdish-Arab relations, and mostly the questions we got were, oh, please, not this again. It's There's no difference. Um, whether it was a women's, the women's movement, Congreya Star in, in Kamishlo, or um, at a, well, okay, so I'll tell you. So the next the next level up was the neighborhood council. So okay. in the West Botan neighborhood of Kobani, mm-hmm. Kobani City, because um, Kobani is also the name of a of a region uh, or a canton, I guess not the canton anymore. Anyway, yeah. um, so in the in the West Botan neighborhood of Kobani City, um, that consists of four communes. So there were there were eight people there: four men, four women, delegates. You know, right. one man, one woman from each commune, and they too talked about what they do there, um, the kinds of issues they deal with, how it's hard it is to get the roads fixed, um, how they need more medical supplies, how they always they how they are, they trained more, uh, graduated more women fighters from the uh, trained in the use of AK-47s uh, the other day, um, and and again when I asked about Arabs and Kurds, one man who was very articulate, he said he said to me, during the fight against Dash. Our blood got mixed. That's very, very powerful. 
very powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. And it's also, and that if you're interested, this, this was a big change, I think, from when I was there in 2014. There was much more, much more social solidarity as a result of the fight, against, the war against Daesh, between mm-hmm. Arabs and Kurds, and also between men and women, because the women proved themselves as fighters. And so yeah. there's no question, no question of of in, women being equal in the society. Again, when we were going around, we asked people, just ordinary people in the street, men. We'd meet men. So how is this women's revolution? You know, what do you think about this? Women running the show? Because back here in the United States, you know, if women were trying to, you know, have equal place with men, there would be huge backlash and huge accusations about, you know, about injustice and so on. And I was expecting something like that because I'm conditioned from right. living here in the United States and uh, they, and they, they were I'm tired of the question exactly. <laughs> they, they just go, take it, take it for granted yeah. that women are equal it's just a brilliant just brilliant and since 2011 to today I uh, you've been to Kurdistan four times and in this four times what you have seen what kind of changes in the Kurdish uh, movement were really fundamental in the way that uh, Rojava developed to today's uh, state that everyone is talking about and it's under attack by the Turkish government. Well, when I was there in 2014, the, the, the front against the Islamists was not that far away. Um, we couldn't go to Kobani because Tel Abiyad hadn't been taken yet, so it was separate from Jazeera. Um, but we, we went as far west as Serakani and the, we could hear mortars or shells going off going off in the distance, so mm-hmm. the front was, was very close and of course there's a lot of nervousness in the society about that. Right. Um, the revolution was still very new, um, and and there was a lot of a lot of insecurity. And the the biggest one of the biggest differences that I found this time was a, a rising confidence in the um, in people I met, especially in Jazeera, especially in Kamishla, which was relatively safe, or though I thought at the time, but it was relatively safe. And I, I it might sound it might sound a little mundane. But one of the things that most moved me was the establishment at um, Rojava University mm-hmm. of four-year programs. Right. You know, they had initially had two-year programs for to train people in functions in the, in the that this new society needed, and they needed them desperately. And so they 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 um, programs in you know engineering. They would rush rush students through because we have to get this done. We have to build this society as quickly as possible. But now, as of last year, there's four-year programs in agricultural engineering and so on, in, in practical things that the society needs, in genealogy, in Kurdish language and literature. Right. And just the fact of it being four years, you know, that was so moving to me. They're just moving forward, even though all there's, as you say, Turkey, Assad, um, 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 the and uh, 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 IS, all the all the different all the different groups that are that hate their guts and that want to just nothing to destroy them, and they're talking about four year programs. Yeah. I just I don't know. I, I was very moved by that. Yeah. Um, and and I found also a great a great largeness of spirit, and that was exemplified by a woman I met in Tel near Tel Tamer, which mm-hmm. is under assault now. Um, as you know. In the Tal Tamaris on the Kabul River, and yeah. there are a lot of villages there that were settled by Assyrian Christians when they had had to flee persecution in Turkey and in Iraq. They'd settled there in the 20s and 30s, and they had been attacked by Daesh in a few years ago, and many of them fled. Um, and in this village, Tel Nasri was basically empty. There were only four Assyrian Christians left. Mm-hmm. So after after Turkey invaded and occupied Afrin 
in 2018, many Kurdish people left, and the self-administration settled some of them in these empty empty villages mm -hmm. on the on the Kaaba River. So in Tel Nasri, I met um, a Kurdish woman um, named named Alam, who um, described what, of course, what we what they had been through and the incredible ordeal of of being invaded by Turkey and what the and the horrors that uh, Turkish that the Turkish state inflicted on them the Turkish forces inflicted and how unfair it was and she she doesn't know where her daughter is she doesn't who was in the YPG she doesn't know where her son is he was right. in the YPG um, she has a new a new son named Kawa mm -hmm. um, and who she says she says she's teaching to him to to fight for Kurdish rights um, but she said a lot of people think that we Kurds here in this Christian village. Uh, are displacing them. And she said, no, 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 no. We were settled here, but we want, we want, we, we're forming friendships with the Christians who are here. She said, for example, are there are a lot of buildings destroyed by the fighting with Daesh, a lot of just rub, reduced to rubble or the walls were crumbling. This sports hall was, had the roof caved in, the church. She said, we're restoring these buildings. For example, there's one building that had a restaurant and we've, we've rebuilt it and it's back to functioning as a restaurant again. And we know who the owner is. He's a Christian who lives in Europe. We sent him a video saying, look, look, we fixed up your restaurant. Why don't you come back here and, and, and run your restaurant again? <laughs> we want to, in other words, they want the, 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 the education amongst the people about ethnic inclusiveness and, and peaceful coexistence is so deeply ingrained now that these refugees um, who have so much to worry about and, and, and so many concerns, they've been through such an ordeal, they're concerned above all to share with the Christians who were there in this town with them. They don't, and they said, and they said, we want to show that when we go back to Afrin, as we know we will one day to go, go back to Afrin, we want to show that we will share with the Arabs who have been settled there now. Right. You know, I mean, just the um, incredible high-mindedness of this and the incredible generosity of spirit was just yeah. striking to me everywhere. Well, well I, I really don't know, uh, how this state of war and turmoil and ordeal and uh, that has been taking the whole region uh, hostage for for many years uh, how this is going to resolve with all of these authoritarian governments all of these vicious forces just uh, trying to uh, destroy this very little uh, island of uh, hope for many um, I know that Janet Beal is doing a lot of work and you've been uh, working on this film and uh, um, you told me that you're also working on a uh, graphic novel about Rojava and uh, there are a lot of translations uh, maybe if you could first talk about uh, your novel and your uh, uh, your work of solidarity with the Kurdish movement and then uh, we could talk a little bit more what kind of solidarity we can show uh, here in Canada in the United States, where you are, and in Europe, and all around the world, uh, for this matter. Well, I'm an, I'm an artist, and as as well, and while I was there, I brought my sketchbook, and so thinking that, you know, while the filmmakers are doing their scene setups or watching watching uh, their rush, daily rushes or something, I could do some drawings, and um, I did. I made an, quite a few of them while I was there. Um, and I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll write a text when I get home, and these will be the illustrations. And 
the more once I did get home and started working on it, I realized that I don't want it to be that it really needed to be a story. It's a mm -hmm. it's not a, a novel in the sense of fiction. It's it's really more like a graphic memoir about my about my my, my the people I met there. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a character in it, right? So I meet people. It, in some ways, it's 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 echoing the film. In fact, in fact. You know, I'm I'm not working on the film anymore. It's in their hands. That we we I the filmmakers and I experience the same material, and they're going to put it in their way in the film, and I'm doing it in my way in yeah. the graphic novel, <laughs> and it will be very interesting to see <laughs> if there's any similarities at all. <laughs> no, I'm sure there will be. But you know what I mean? It's it's different different artists, different medium working on the same material, and I think that will be interesting for people. It certainly will be for me. Um, so. And yeah, are they so, both scheduled to be released uh, uh, at the same time or closer to each other in terms of? I think the film will be finished first because one thing I found, this is my first graphic novel, and one thing I found is it takes a long time. So okay. it's very labor intensive. Yeah. And so probably sometime next year it'll be finished. Uh, the film, I, I, I don't know, I think the film will be out first. Okay. Um, um, but um, it's certainly... I, I feel that it is the right medium. I'm really. I feel like it's a way for me to to help the reader, help readers share what I went through, and also to reach new audiences. You know, I mean, a lot of our discussions in Rajava Solidarity. Um, sometimes it feels like an echo chamber. We're all we're all, you know, sharing the same things on Facebook and going to and having demonstrations and all that is very important and very wonderful. But I also feel like the need to reach new people. And so I was hoping I was hoping that through the graphic novel I could reach um, younger people, especially who are interested right. in interested in in visual communication, mm -hmm. maybe more than they would they they'd read a graphic novel before they would read a book. So yeah. about it. So yeah. so that's part of part of the. And the also, uh, what uh, I heard from Rojava. Uh, well, right now the situation is uh, war, and uh, they need solidarity in their defense against a Turkish invasion, but. Uh, I think Rojava University also uh, asks for uh, help for people to go there, share their knowledge. If there are people who would want to go to Rojava in better times, probably not uh, right now. So uh, have you heard about this on, or like what sort of other, maybe more academic or intellectual ways we can uh, support the moment? Well, I think I've read. I read that they were hoping for more journalists to come. Um, they need to go if they if you are a journalist and want to go, please report to the Rojava Information Center. They will help help guide you. Uh, it's in Danik, I believe. Mm -hmm. They will help you situate you and help help you know what needs to be covered. You know, right now we get a lot of of a lot of videos get uploaded onto Twitter um, of of the atrocities committed by the Turkish back jihadists now yeah. um, that there's just not enough systematic journalistic coverage and I think that was um, the the Samalka crossing over the Tigris is open apparently okay. um, yeah. and I think that that there's a great need for for journalists to go there and cover in some ways you know it works to Turkey's benefit that if when there's a news blackout you know because they, they the Turks the Turkey loves to do its dirty work in silence, with outside the outside the the purview of the, the outside the vision of the world, and so the more journalists that could go there, the better. Yeah. I think also there's a great need for um, medical medical care. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, um, mm -hmm. there's there have been I think 500 people have been killed 
as of, or more or less or as of now and many many injured they're over the the healthcare facilities are way overtaxed mm-hmm. um, they desperately need people to help if you have if you have um, any healthcare background again the, the tigris crossing is open and if you could get to Havasor, or Havasor could could perform the functioning of the function of helping you, you know, get get to where you're most needed. Um, that would be that would be excellent. And this is where they also ask for a lot of donations, Havasor. Absolutely, absolutely. I will be I will be um, speaking at the Kurdish Cultural and Film Festival in New York in December, and I'm donating my drawings to, as a fundraiser for Havasor. Fantastic. So. So any any kind of event you can do that's you can think creatively, you know, um, but any kind of fundraising t- to do for Havasor, it's much much needed. So that would be one of the best practical things that that people could do um, who are not doctors and not journalists and are tired of going to demonstrations. But please don't underestimate either the importance of demonstrations. On the contrary, you know, as I, I wish I could go to one living in Vermont. Yeah. Um, don't don't underestimate that. I, I envy you being able to go and, and express how you feel on the streets of oh so many different European cities now, and it's it's very it's everyone every one of them puts pressure on the Turkish state, right. and, and and is noticed because you you know how much Turkey it has its eye on Europe and on 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 Turkish on Kurdish activities in Europe, so they consider it their their part of their their you know, capability to crack down even on Kurdish Kurdish activity in Europe. So please, please don't don't think that it's not, it, it's it's very meaningful to go to a demonstration. I, I totally agree. So. And uh, I think the power of uh, this solidarity that has been uh, shown and uh, displayed on the streets of uh, the world, like everywhere around the world, is just really uh, great and uh, very heartwarming that we should definitely show up to all of the events. Uh, but okay, maybe we can move on with the, a little bit of the uh, uh, the daily events and go back. Uh, I want to go back uh, uh, to history a little bit, uh, if you won't mind. I, I want to ask you about uh, how this all started. Like We have uh, some uh, reports, some news that uh, the relationship between you uh, with the Kurdish movement uh, started with the letter coming from a German lawyer of uh, Abdullah Ojalan. And uh, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. I remember the day um, Murray signed a contract with a, a, um, a publisher in Istanbul to for his books to be translated into Turkish. I remember the contract, I remember he signed it, and I remember going to drop it in the mail to send to Turkey, and I remember thinking, Turkey? Social ecology? Never. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but, but I sent it in. <laughs> when was that? That was would have been in like 1993, 1994, something like that. Wow. So these were, so these were his books: The Ecology of Freedom, mm-hmm. uh, The Rise of Urbanization. So his, some of his most important books were translated right. into Turkish in the mid 90s. I should say, thanks to a group of militant social ecologists in Istanbul. They're the mm-hmm. ones that pushed for it, and they are the unsung heroes of this story because it's because of their pressure that mm-hmm. Murray's works were major works were translated into Turkish. Um, so, yeah, so they were. And, and are they still and, active? Uh, some of them are, but they're dispersed now. They're they they live in different parts of the world. That's the, the group itself doesn't exist anymore, as far right. as I know. Um, um, so 
Right. So it, 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 then, as you know, that, that it was 1999, the capture of Erdogan. He was imprisoned. He was sentenced to death. It was commuted to life imprisonment. He's in solitary confinement on a on a uh, Imrali in the Sea of Marmara, and he needs. He's asked the comrades through his lawyers what he should read to mm -hmm. send books for him to read because. Only his lawyers can see him at that point, apparently. Right. And so the comrades put together some some books. Uh, maybe I, I always picture it as like a box of books of social theory, of Western social theory, of, you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein and Michel Foucault and some, you know, Middle Eastern people and maybe Eastern people. I don't know, but a whole, a whole range of, of books, including these translations of Murray's books that had been made. And he reads them, and, and I'm sure he was... Influenced by and 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 his thoughts were provoked by many many of these books and I don't and I've been warned not to you know be too make too many claims here about Bookchin but there was he was impressed by Bookchin right. to, to a greater or lesser degree um, which makes sense because Murray was a an anti-statist he was a, an anarchist he argued he had this idea of communalism of face-to-face -face democracy in Confederation becoming mm -hmm. the way to organize society. Um, in a way that you know it wouldn't be corrupted by wealth and power, power would stay in the hands of of the people, and in in a way it really makes sense. I thought right away for the Kurdish people to to be interested in these ideas because they are the largest ethnic group on the planet without a state, right. and this is an, a non-statist ideology. And so apparently, um, I'm surmising that that this was very intriguing to Mr. Ojalan and to other people in the Kurdish movement. Um, a way as a way of gaining some um, democratic autonomy, as it came to be called, um, uh, without without challenging the nation state. And so as as I so and yeah, I, that was would have been around 2000 that he 2000. read Murray's books, and he started. Um, there were some notes in diaries that Yust Youngerden and his collaborator have published, and then in. Um, 2004, in April of 2004, um, I opened, opened my email inbox one morning, which I shared with Murray, and I, I shared with Murray, and uh, it was a letter from Raima, I, he's allowed me to use his name, from Raima Haider, from the um, Freedom for Ergelon Initiative in Germany, and he said that he had heard from Ergelon's lawyers, that Ergelon was interested in having a dialogue with Murray. Um, because he read his books and was very impressed by them. And um, Murray said, well, uh, oh, no, he didn't mention that he'd read his books then, because Murray wrote back saying, oh, that's very, I'm glad you're interested in my ideas. Read my books <laughs> in Turkish, <laughs> didn't re not realizing that he already had. Um, and and the... Um, and this was so in that, 2004? 2004. Okay, what month? Like, April. Like, in April, April, okay. 2004, April... I think 9th, 2004 was the first letter came. And and uh, we didn't really, neither Murray nor I knew very much about Abdullah Erjelan then. We, I remember watching his arrest on, on TV back in 1999, but, you know, not having any special thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and so apparently Raima gave Murray's letter to the lawyers, who gave it to Mr. Erjelan, who wrote back, via the lawyers and via Reimar to Murray, saying he really would like to have a dialogue. And he considers, he said, I consider myself a good student of your ideas. I consider myself a social ecologist. Now, I have to tell you, at this time, 
we again we didn't really have any premonition of how momentous this was yeah. and Murray at this time was sick and tired and near the end of his life he'd had many many phases of excitement and then many followed by many disappointments right. over and over in his life and building like many times and he had basically said to me keep people away from me just keep people. i can't take it anymore i can't take it anymore right. so so he he was very very you know, very gracious to Mr. Ojalan. He said, you know, you, you, I'm, I think the Kurdish people are in good hands with a talented leader like you, but, um, you know, I, I, I can't have this dialogue right now. I'm, I'm sick and, and, and just, and tired and, and <laughs> depressed, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, oh, oh, Sardar, if only I could turn the clock back and oh, say, no, Murray, you have to have a dialogue with this man. <laughs> you have to do this. <laughs> I wish, I so wish I could turn the clock back, but it would have been amazing, but as it was, it, it was it was not to be. But Mr. Ojalan apparently did not did not let this deter him. He went on ahead to formulate democratic confederalism, and it was all fought out within the PKK. Apparently, oh, and this one story, when Murray wrote back the second time, okay, um, he cc'd it to Rima. He sent it to Rima and to a, a collaborator of Rima named Oliver, who was working with him on this dialogue, and Oliver. Uh, was in a at that time in a hotel room in Amman, Jordan, when he checked his email and saw that Murray's letter had come in. He was on his way to a PKK assembly, oh, wow. so he brought the, he brought the letter. He, he he printed out Murray's letter, put it in his pocket, and went to I guess the mountains, to uh, to the assembly. And when he got there, he showed it to some one of the organizers of the assembly and said, "Look, look, look! This is a letter from Bookshin. Why don't Why don't you read it?" Wow. And it was still in 2004. It was still not clear that democratic confederalism was going to be was going to be given up after all, you know, the, especially the old guard of the PKK who had been fighting for the Marxist, you know, in, for in an independent Kurdistan along Marxist, yeah. basically Marxist lines for, you know, decades. Yeah. And they'd seen their brothers and sisters in arms fall. Yeah. You know, they weren't going to give up on the idea yeah. that, they, that their, their comrades had died for, their havals had died for, not easily. Whereas the younger people were more interested in it. So that was, I think, part of, as I understand it, part of the clash mm-hmm. um, of, of between, was within the PKK was generational, although it's hard to, for me, I'm inferring that, and I've never had that anyone confirm that for me. Yeah. But that's what I infer. And so, anyway, at, at, at this assembly, what Oliver told me was that the woman, oh, oh the man, one of the older men said, what do we need with an anarchist in the United States with 50 followers? We can do better than that. <laughs> <laughs> Which was about, about right. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but the woman, but the young people were, and especially the women, were interested. Mm-hmm. So this woman who was running the assembly, she said, I'm just going to read it. So she just pulled it out and she made a quick translation and she read it and was very, very warmly received in the oh. assembly. And that was apparently an important step in all of this. So, so Murray's correspondence did maybe, maybe make a difference. Yeah. In any case, as I said, Urgelon, after the correspondence ended, this very brief correspondence, Urgelon went on to, to formulate a, a declaration of democratic confederalism. And mm-hmm. when Murray died uh, uh, when in 2006, in mm-hmm. July of 2006, the PKK assembly wrote a beautiful tribute to him. It was, went on for five or six pages about mm-hmm paying homage to the great social scientist of the 20th century who taught them that the Marxism was wrong and you need to go for democracy and ecology and, and reject the nation state. And, and we swear to form the first Bookchin society, Bookchin polity on planet Earth. We wow. swear to do this. And they did it. 
did indeed. They did indeed. Um, Too bad Murray didn't live to see it. But yeah, they are as good as they were. You know, I I have friends, I have friends in, um, you know, American friends who are interested in theory, but theory is just um, theory and ideas. But most Americans are very like practical minded, like we will do this and this and this, whatever seems right at the time. And my friends in France, they love theory. They make beautiful theories, and then they put them on the shelf, they told me. Yep. We, we, love, <laughs> we love ideas, but we don't. But they, we, then we put them on the shelf, and then we admire them. So between the very practical Americans and the very theoretical French. So you say you, the Kurds are between French and America? <laughs> in, this sense, in this sense, that they spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is the best theory, and they refine it, and they shape it, and they say, okay, this is what we need to do. And then... They implement it. They put it into practice. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yes. <laughs> and that's what they did with democratic and federalism. And it's just, yeah. And just... I feel like the, the this transformation, this ideological transformation within the PKK, it took a lot of time. I actually, uh, like since late 1990s, and then there was first this exploration of democratic republic by Ojalan, and uh, a lot of disappointment between people uh, that when first the idea of independent Kurdistan was abandoned by the PKK, some people uh, departed, they left uh, the PKK, including uh, um, Abla Ojalan's brother, Osman Ojalan. But then this uh-huh. transformation really produced this uh, uh, with the leading uh, uh, role of uh, Abdullah Ojalan and under the influence of Murai Bukhchin. And of course, as you said, Many other thinkers like uh, uh, Barstein, like Foucault, like uh, people from uh, autonomous Marxists, people like Hart, Negri, and uh, a lot of new uh, social theorists that uh, were debated in Europe. That's just uh, Erdogan, very like this smart uh, figure to bring brought all of them and then put them into practice. So I, I, I totally agree that this transformation was really painful for the movement, but uh, the way that it, uh, the, the whole movement came out of that and uh, produced this, uh, uh, this result that we are seeing it in Rojava and in, in, the, in, in Bakur, in the Turkish uh, occupied Kurdistan, it was practiced in municipalities, in many, uh, civil society organizations like in the sphere of civil society in general like many neighborhood councils were about to establish many networks of this uh, grassroots communal organizations were about to emerge but the uh, the question of oppression uh, came the question of the turkish brutal colonialism came and uh, destroyed everything in 2016 in about two weeks, I mean, uh, it's it's really sad how uh, a nation state can uh, destroy everything uh, built by the people in that part of the world. I mean, in Europe, probably we have better uh, check and balance uh, uh, mechanism and uh, dynamics and people do not let the governments to be that powerful. But in Turkey, yeah, this is the case. So. Uh, and we are right now dealing with uh, Turkey that uh, in front of everyone's eyes, just because uh, it is a member of NATO, can do everything to Rojava. I really don't know what we can, uh, what we can do to stop the Turkish states, this brutal 
colonial uh, takeover of Kurdistan. And well, yeah. it's, it's, I, there's no one thing, but there's a lot of a lot of different things. I think one thing that's been very effective in the, this past couple of weeks is is boycotting Turkish Airlines, um, and mm -hmm. and and not just boycotting in the sense of I will I will not fly on Turkish Airlines, but in the sense of going to their counters in inter, major international airports and blockading literally stopping the flights. Yeah. And so I think like 20, 20 or thirty, twenty seven or thirty flights have been have been stopped at this yeah. point. Um, that's 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 one way, yeah. well, one one small way. Um, pressure on on representatives on governments um, should be. I think yeah. I think you're right. It's not just. It can't it can't stop with this invasion. I think there needs to be a culture of solidarity that's with 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 Rojava that has to, with the northeast Syria that needs to continue um, as for for in the in the indefinite future. And it needs to be creative, and it needs to be lasting. And I think, especially governments like mine in the United States, I feel that that the injustice that the United States inflicted on the Kurds is is just something. It's just a complete. It's, it's a stain. It's a blood stain on 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 the the ideals that this country paid homage to for so long. They can't do it anymore. I mean, it's not that this country and not that this country has ever completely lived up to its ideals, but this is such a, a such a black mark, the betrayal of the Kurds. I think that it will be necessary for especially in the United States to make up for that. I think mm -hmm. we owe we owe a historical debt to the Kurdish people in this country now and that somehow something will have to be done. And insofar as as European countries and and Canada, I don't know, I'm not quite sure about Canada's role, I'm sorry, but but um, insofar as other countries have simply laid, stood by and watched this happen, even the United Nations, I read this morning, yeah. they're not going, they're not going, they're, they are quote unquote open to what Turkey is doing. In other words, to ethnic cleansing, the United Nations that was found in the wake of the Holocaust against the Jewish people, yeah. uh, uh, tolerating this genocide. Yeah. Yeah, well, another thing that uh, you mentioned, Canada, and also in the United States, the PKK is on the list of the terrorist organizations, which is uh, quite honestly, uh, it's very interesting how still after the, the long fight against Daesh and the instrumental role that the PKK fighters had in this fight, and uh, despite all of the, the Turkish state's uh, atrocities against the Kurdish people, uh, there's still no questioning of why uh, we are not delisting the PKK. So, uh, and th this is how I feel the Canadian government could also respond. The Canadian government is uh, also uh, providing a lot of weapons to the Turkish government. Like they will like some very uh, saving face condemnations by Christian Freeland, the uh, foreign affairs minister. But uh, mm. I mean, uh, I feel that the whole uh, West, in somehow, in some ways, uh, they're complicit. Like I mean, they they use the Kurds in this fight. But maybe I should just take it back. They they collaborated, and they of course the Kurds uh, stopped ISIS from spreading to uh, Europe to um, to the West. But this fight was. Uh, something that the Kurds believed it in principle that this uh, group must be stopped. This is the most fascistic uh, group that uh, has been seen, uh, and they, it must be stopped. And uh, and the attacks that they did against the Yazidis in uh, Mount Sinjar must mm -hmm. be revenged. 
So uh, the Kurds did it for themselves, but uh, it was also a great uh, uh, service to everyone in the war because, uh, yeah. When I was there in 2014, 2015, they always said we were, we're fighting Dash for humanity. And if, when I first, the first time I heard that, I thought, well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But then the more I thought about it, no, that's not an exaggeration. They really are, considering how Islamic State has been attacking people, you know, all over the world. Exactly. They really are. They really are. Interestingly, this time, when I was there in 2019, when we asked the um, YPJ and YPJ fighters what they were fighting for, they didn't say humanity this time. They said, our land and our people. So... Yeah, but that's okay. They deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they already fought for. They already yeah. did the fight for humanity. Now yeah. they fight for themselves for a change a little bit too. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, Janet, it has been great talking to you. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you. Till